Annihilation. Annihilation. Standing on flagstones of the sidewalk at the entrance to Hades, Orpheus hunched in a gust of wind that tore at his coat, rolled past in waves of fog, tossed the leaves of the trees, the headlights of cars, flared and dimmed in each succeeding wave. He stopped at the glass-paneled doors, uncertain whether he was strong enough for that ultimate trial. He remembered her words, You are a good man. He did not quite believe it. Lyric poets usually have, as he knew, cold hearts. It is like a medical condition. Perfection in art is given in exchange for such an affliction. Only her love warmed him, humanized him. When he was with her, he thought differently about himself. He could not fail her now, when she was dead. He pushed open the door and found himself walking in a labyrinth. Corridors, elevators. The livid light was not light but the dark of the earth. Electronic dogs passed him noiselessly. He descended many floors, a hundred, three hundred, down. He was cold, aware that he was nowhere. Under thousands of frozen centuries, on an ashy trace where generations had moldered, in a kingdom that seemed to have no bottom and no end. Thronging shadows surrounded him. He recognized some of the faces. He felt the rhythm of his blood. He felt strongly his life with its guilt, and he was afraid to meet those to whom he had done harm. But they had lost the ability to remember, and gave him only a glance indifferent to all that. For his defense, he had a nine-stringed lyre. He carried in it the music of the earth against the abyss that buries all of sound in silence. He submitted to the music, yielded to the dictation of a song, listening with rapt attention, became, like his lyre, its instrument. Thus he arrived at the palace of the rulers of that land, Persephone, in her garden of withered pears and apple trees, black with naked branches and varicose twigs, listened from the funereal amethyst of her throne. He sang the brightness of mornings and green rivers. He sang of smoking water in the rose-colored daybreaks, of colors, cinnabar, carmine, burnt sienna, blue, of the delight of swimming in the sea under marble cliffs, of feasting on a terrace above the tumult of a fishing port, of tastes of wine, olive oil, almonds, mustard, salt, of the flight of the swallow, the falcon, of a dignified flock of pelicans above the bay, of the scent of an armful of lilacs in summer rain, of his having composed his words always against death, and of having made no rhyme in praise of nothingness. I don't know, said the goddess, whether you loved her or not, yet you have come here to rescue her. She will be returned to you, but there are conditions. You are not permitted to speak to her, or on the journey back, to turn your head, even once, to assure yourself that she is behind you. And so Hermes brought forth Eurydice, her face no longer hers, utterly gray, her eyelids lowered beneath the shade of her lashes. She stepped rigidly, directed by the hand of her guide. Orpheus wanted so much to call her name, to wake her from that sleep, but he refrained, for he had accepted the condition. And so they set out, he first, and then, not right away, the slap of the god's sandals and the light patter of her feet fettered by her robe, as if by a shroud. A steep climbing path phosphorized, out of darkness like the walls of a tunnel. He would stop and listen, but then they stopped too, and the echo faded. And when he began to walk, the double tapping commenced again. Sometimes it seemed closer, sometimes more distant. Under his faith, a doubt sprang up, and entwined him like cold bindweed. Unable to weep, he wept at the loss. 
of the human hope for the resurrection of the dead, because he was now like every other mortal. His lyre was silent, yet he dreamed defenseless. He knew he must have faith, and he could not have faith, and so he would persist for a very long time, counting his steps in half-wakeful torpor. Day was breaking, shapes of rock loomed up, under the luminous eye of the exit from underground. It happened as he expected. He turned his head, and behind him on the path was no one. Sun, and sky, and in the sky white clouds. Only now everything cried to him, Eurydice. How will I live without you, my consoling one? But there was a fragrant scent of herbs, the low humming of bees, and he fell asleep with his cheek on the sun-warmed earth. Sisla, Milos, Orpheus, and Eurydice. Lena, Cain, their bedroom, on the day of his departure. The script says Lena picks up something in Cain, a detachment, a subtle coldness. Lena, what is it? Reverse on Cain. The script says Cain doesn't answer for a moment. Then he looks at her. In the film, he is already looking at her, but he closes his eyes before speaking. In the script, Cain says simply, I love you, Lena. In the film, it does not flow so smoothly. Second eight, he begins. I do... Love you. He opens his eyes again. Lena. Second 17. Back to Lena. The script says Lena frowns, but she does not. She seems perplexed more than upset, and she responds after a beat. Lena, I love you too. Second 22 on Kane, gazing back at her flatly, giving nothing back, unreachable. Then second 23, he raises his hand abruptly and we cut back to Lena as Kane touches her forehead with his hand, brushing her hair away from her face. Lena pushes lightly into his hand, then more, turns her face into it and kisses it, pushes into his hand, sitting up. Familiar guitar comes in as Lena rises up toward Kane, as if to kiss him, but he does not reciprocate. Second 31, angle past Lena on Kane. He gets up, rising out of frame to the right, and Lena turns her face into frame, watching him go. Now returning, he had escaped all dangers, and his restored Eurydice was coming to the upper air following behind. For Proserpina had given those conditions. When a sudden madness sees the unwary lover pardonable, however, did the mains know how to pardon? He stopped, and now, even at the confines of light, thoughtless, alas, deprived of understanding, he looked back at his Eurydice. There all his labor vanished, and the conditions of the cruel Tyrek were broken, and a groan was thrice heard in the Avernian Lake. Then she... Who is it, O Orpheus, that has destroyed miserable me, and thee also? Whose great madness was this? Lo, again the cruel fates call me back, and sleep seals up my swimming eyes. And now adieu, I am carried away encompassed with thick darkness, and stretching out my hands to you in vain, alas, being no longer yours. She said, and fled suddenly from his sight a different way, like smoke mixing with thin air. Nor did she see him catching in vain at the shadows, and desiring to say a great deal more. Nor did the very man of hell suffer him again to pass over the withstanding lake. What should he do? Whither should he betake himself, having twice lost his wife? With what complaint should he move the mains with that song of the deities? She already sat shivering in the Stygian boat. It is said that he lamented seven whole continued months under a lofty oak by the waters of deserted Stremon, and that he sung his misfortunes under the cold caves, appeasing tigers 
and leading Oaks with his song. Virgil, the Georgics. script we cut to, interior abandoned base slash rec room night. Lena's eyes flicking open. 
echoing the image of her waking that we just saw, but this time when she rubs the sleep out of her eyes, she's in the shimmer. Reveal what was once the rec room of the abandoned base. There's a dartboard on the wall and a pool table with mold-covered base and a pinball machine with broken glass. She's got a sheen of sweat on her face, wipes it off, looks around. On the floor she sees Thornson, asleep on her unrolled bedding. Beside Thornson is Raddick, also asleep. Beside Raddick is Shepard, awake. Shepard winks. Lena, hey. The two women whisper quietly to each other. Shepard, how you doing, babe? Lena, fine. I see. 
Sparkle 
Second 31 angle past Lena on Kane. He gets up, rising out of frame to the right, and Lena turns her face into frame, watching him go. Beat. In the film, we smash cut from the bedroom to Lena sitting up, awake in the dark of the guard tower. Just beyond Lena is Shepard, then Thornton, then Raddick, all asleep. Lena sits, beat, puts her left hand to her face, beat. Second 50 smash cut to cells under a microscope, bright blues and purples, fluctuating, then dividing. The new cell has an outer segment that is more yellow. It resembles the other cell, but is not the same. Second 57 smash cut close on Lena, pulling away from the eyepiece of the microscope, her face taking up roughly half the frame. She furrows her brow, and time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. 